Section 29 of Monday Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Monday Tales by Alphonse Daudet. Translated by Marion McIntyre. Section 29. Arthur. Some years ago, I occupied a tiny box of a house in the Champs-Élysées, in the Passage des Deux Maisons. Picture to yourself an out-of-the-way corner of that faubourg, nestling in the midst of those great aristocratic avenues, so cold, so tranquil, along which it seems that no one ever passes, except in an equipage. Whether the caprice of their owner was some insane freak of avarice or a mania for old things, I do not know. But there, in the midst of this beautiful quarter, he had allowed those waste spaces to remain, with little moldy gardens, low houses crookedly built, the staircase on the outside, and wooden terraces covered with linen spread to dry, rabbit cages here and there, lean cats, and famished tame crows. Here also had installed themselves mechanics, petty pensioners, some few artists, the latter always to be found where trees are left, and, in addition to all this, there were two or three lodging-houses of sordid aspect, which looked as if begrimed with the poverty of generations. All around was the stir and splendor of the Champs-Élysées, an incessant rumbling, the clatter of horses' hoofs, and the sound of porte-cochère opening heavily. Barouches roll by, shaking the portals as they pass. The muffled sound of pianos and the violins of Mabille Garden are heard. Outlined against the horizon stand great silent houses, with swelling fronts, their windows shaded with light silken curtains, while behind the tall panes of spotless glass gleam golden candelabra and jardinière filled with rare flowers. To enter that dark passageway of the Douze Maisons, standing in the midst of the beautiful scenery of the neighborhood, and lighted at one end by a single street lamp, seemed like stepping behind the scenes in a theater. The spangles that decorated all this luxury found a refuge there. Liveried lace, the clown's tights, a vagabond world of circus riders, English ostlers, two tiny postilions of the Hippodrome, with their twin ponies and advertising placards, goat carts, punchinellos, wafer sellers, and a whole tribe of blind men returned at evening, loaded with camp-stools, accordions, and bowls. One of these blind men was married while I lived in the Passage, and the event was the occasion of a concert which lasted all night long, a fantastic concert where clarionets, hautboys, hand-organs, and accordions mingled, while that procession paraded the various bridges of Paris, to the droning sound of their various instruments. But ordinarily, the Passage was very quiet, these nomads of the street never returned till dusk, and then they were tired enough. There was rarely a racket, except on Saturday, when Arthur received his week's pay. Arthur was my neighbor. A tiny wall, prolonged by a trellis, separated my pavilion from the lodging-house in which he dwelt with his wife, and so, in spite of myself, his life and mine came in contact for a time, and every Saturday... I was compelled, without losing a single word of it all, 
to listen to the horrible drama so often enacted in the homes of mechanics of this sort, a drama so Parisian in its details. It always began the same way. The wife would prepare dinner, the children gathering about her. She talked to them in a gentle voice and was very busy. Seven o'clock, eight o'clock, and no one came. As the hours passed, her voice changed in tone, became nervous and tearful. The children grew hungry and sleepy and began to whine. But the husband did not return. They ate without him. Then, the little brood in bed, the children asleep, she would appear upon the wooden balcony, and I could hear her whisper between her sobs, Oh, the blackguard! The blackguard! Neighbors would find her there and try to sympathize. Come, come, go to bed, Madame Arthur. You know he'll not be home tonight. It's payday. Then advice and gossip would follow. I know what I'd do if I were in your place. Speak to his employer about it, why don't you? All this talk merely made her weep the more, but she persisted in hoping and waiting. And completely worn out, after every door was shut and the passage silent, she would remain there leaning upon her elbow, believing herself quite alone, absorbed by a single fixed idea. She would repeat to herself quite loudly the story of all her misfortunes, with the abandon of one who has lived half her life in the streets. They were behindhand with their rent. Every tradesman harassed them. The baker refused them bread. And what would she do if her husband returned again without money? At last she was too weary to do more than count the hours and watch belated passers-by. She would re-enter, but long afterwards, when I thought all was over, I would hear a cough quite close to me upon the balcony. The poor woman was there again. Her restlessness would not permit her to remain within. She peered into the dark street, ruining her eyes and seeing nothing but her own wretchedness. Towards one or two o'clock, and sometimes much later, someone would be heard singing at the end of the lane. Arthur was returning. More frequently than not, he would come dragging a boon companion along with him to the very door, insisting, Come in, come in. And even at the door he loitered, unable to decide whether or not he would enter, for he knew well what awaited him within. As he climbed the stairs, the heavy sound of his footsteps echoed through the silence of the slumbering house, and filled him with an uneasy sensation not unlike remorse. He talked aloud, pausing before each hovel to remark, Good evening, Mam Weber. Good evening, Mam Mathieu. If no one answered, he burst forth with a volley of abuse, and all the windows opened to return his maledictions. That was what he wished. In his drunken state, he loved brawling and noise, and all this warmed him so that he became quite angry, less afraid to enter when he reached his own quarters. For that moment of entering was a terrible one. Open, it is I. Then I would hear the woman's bare feet upon the floor, the striking of matches, and the story the man attempted to tell her as he entered. It was always the same. His comrades had led him away. What's his name? You know whom I mean. He works on the railroad. Well, he... 
The wife paid not the slightest attention to this. And your money? There is none left, Arthur's voice would reply. You lie! And he did. No matter how deeply under the influence of liquor, he always left a few sous unspent, anticipating the return of his thirst on Monday. And it was this small remnant of his week's earnings that she tried to wrest from him. Arthur struggled, disputed the point. Didn't I tell you I drank it all, he would cry? Without response, she would descend upon him with all the strength her indignation and overstrung nerves had gathered. She shook him, ransacked, turned his pockets inside out. In a few moments, the sound of money rolling upon the ground would be heard. The woman would grasp it eagerly with a triumphant laugh. There, you see now. Then followed an oath, the sound of blows descending heavily. The drunkard was taking his revenge. Once he had set out to beat her, he never paused. All that was vilest, most pernicious in these dreadful pothouse wines, mounted to his brain, and those fumes must work off their effects in some way. The woman howled. The last bits of furniture in their hovel were smashed to pieces. The children, startled from their sleep, cried with fright, and all along the passage, windows opened and listeners remarked, It is Arthur! It is Arthur! Sometimes the father-in-law, an old rag-picker who lived in the neighboring lodging house, would come to his daughter's rescue. But Arthur would lock the door that he need not be disturbed in his task. Then, through the locked door, a frightful dialogue would ensue between father and son-in-law, and we would catch charming fragments such as these. "'Your two years in prison were not enough for you, you scoundrel!' the old man would exclaim." and the drunkard would reply in a superb tone, Well, I did spend two years in prison. What of that? At least I have paid my debt to society. Try to pay your own. It seemed a very simple matter to him. I stole. You put me in prison. We are quits. However, when the old man was too persistent, Arthur would grow impatient, open his door, and fall upon father-in-law, mother-in-law, and neighbors, and like Punchinello, fight the whole world. And yet he was not badly disposed. Many a Sabbath, on the day after one of these murderous assaults, this pacified drunkard, with not a sou left for a drink, would pass the day at home. Chairs were brought forth from various rooms. Mam Weber, Mam Mathieu, and indeed all the lodging house, would install themselves upon the balcony and converse. Arthur played the agreeable, was the leading spirit. You would have taken him for one of those model mechanics who are constant attendants at evening school. He assumed for the occasion a lamb-like, mild voice, declaimed fragments of ideas gathered a little from every source, thoughts concerning the rights of the working man, the tyranny of capital. His poor wife, somewhat subdued from the effects of the beating received the night before, regarded him admiringly. Nor was she his only admirer. Ah, that man, Arthur, if he only would, Mam Weber often murmured with a sigh. To add the finishing touch, these ladies would ask him to sing, and he would sing that song of Monsieur de Belanger, The Swallows. 
Oh, that throaty voice, full of artificial tears, the workingman's inane sentimentality. Beneath the tarred paper, moldy veranda, old clothes were spread out in every direction, but between the lines a glimpse of the blue sky was seen, and all that vulgar crowd, charmed with the unreality of his attitudinizing, rolled their moistened eyes heavenward. But all this did not hinder Arthur from spending his week's pay for drink on the following Saturday night and beating his wife as usual. Neither could it hinder the fact that, in that wretched rookery, was a whole hive of little Arthurs like their father, waiting only until they arrived at his age to squander their pay upon drink and beat their wives also. And that is the race that would govern the world. Ah, maladie, as my neighbors of the passage used to say. End of section 29 Recording by Linda Johnson